0: It is good to be back. There's nothing like an absence that will make us appreciate what we have. Being able to gather together like this and not being able to do it for a time. And Margaret and I would just sit there on Sunday mornings like, we're supposed to be somewhere. I just, it's just not right, you know. It just, you get so used to it. So I am thankful and grateful that we are able to get back together again and certainly appreciate every time that we can, Sunday or any other time we get together We're at that time of the year that the church chooses new leadership, not new leadership, sorry, just leadership in general, maybe additional leaders to lead the church, to lead ministries. You know, we're going to choose those who want to be deacons, those who want to be elders. We've just chosen a new pastor, praise God. And while those titles, those with titles, are the easiest to identify as leadership, as leaders, Leadership is much, much, much more than that. When I first started in ministry, and this was in the 80s, the hot new thing was small group ministry. And that was the way to kind of bring people together in a social setting and be able to minister to them, you know, on a one-to-one basis or in very small groups where people could freely share and trust one another. And it was a great idea. And churches saw a good benefit and saw great rewards from it. But eventually... Like anything else, it became kind of a checkbox. You know, like so many other things that we do in church, sometimes it's, okay, I attended Sunday school. Check. I attended small group. Check. I stayed awake for the whole sermon. Check, check. So what now? How do we get people kind of out of that mindset? And churches, as they worked on that idea, began to realize kind of the truth that we all know instinctively is that people tend to develop their own small groups even in a church of this size there are groups of people who have kind of the same interests the same backgrounds they're in the same stage of life any number of different things will naturally get people to kind of congregate together and form groups and within those groups it's natural that leaders will emerge and it's usually the person that starts the group, because it's just that kind of personality to go out and get people and to meet people and to invite them. All of that to say that there are leaders in every church who don't have a title, but have responsibility for the welfare of people that, uh, that God has given them influence over. So I want to talk about this morning leadership as a concept, not, you know, leadership specifically about elders and deacons and the elders have talked about those qualifications and and a lot of us are well aware of them but i just want to talk about kind of what leadership means what are we looking for besides the specific qualifications what does it mean to be a godly leader in the church and first of all a godly leader is a servant there are books there are books and books and books upon shelves upon shelves upon shelves written about servant leadership written by both christians and non-christians alike the idea that a good leader needs to take care of their people, good military leaders look after the welfare of their troops, making sure they get fed, they get housed, they will eat with them when they're out in the field, and they'll sleep in the same places. They'll bunk among them. Granted, it's not in a tent with 20 other guys, but still, they're living in the field with their troops. The, the late CEO of Southwest Airlines, Herb Keller, is an example of a man that understood that people needed to be taken care of or wanted and wanted to be taken care of. He believed in servant leadership. And he believed that the business of business is people, as he would say. And during his tenure at Southwest, Kelleher implemented 10 customer-first principles that guided the airline's infamous famous, customer service policies. He also started an employee's first principle, which are the customer-first principles with the word employee substituted for customer and he endeavored to treat his employees as just as good as he did his customers because he knew that that kind of a workplace is what would foster well-being towards his customers and putting customers first if you put in, if employees feel like they're being put first so in but philippians 2 3 through 8 lays this out for us very nicely paul writes do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not only look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. That is really, I mean, used as the epitome of servant leadership was the example that Jesus gave us. And we're rightly to emphasize that leaders are not better than their followers, which is what the passage in Philippians illustrates. And good leaders work and live among their followers and are one with them. Jesus had the authority. He had all authority. He had the ultimate. He was God. And yet he gave that up to become like us and serve us. I think the end of that passage in verse 8 is very telling and, and it's kind of easy to gloss over it at the end. Paul writes, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now I want to drill down on that idea of obedience for a minute. There were a couple of different ways that you could end up a servant in the Roman world. Slave, you can substitute the word slave, that's fine. The first was being defeated by the Roman army. They would take back, <clears throat> bring back prisoners from the survivors and from people of the region as prisoners and sell them, bring them back to be sold as slaves. There were others who were referred to as indentured servants, and this idea survived many, many, many years, even into uh, the young American time, the new country. And an indentured servant was someone who would sell themselves to pay a debt, to earn money. In Europe, they would indentured servitude to come to the new world to buy passage over with a family that could could pay it and a good servant the more the indentured servant that i'm wanting to focus on not the the slave the captured forced individual but to the idea of entering into voluntary servitude is just it's kind of weird for us we just don't get that concept unless depending on who you work for you maybe you think you are an indentured servant i don't know a good servant was completely focused on his master's well-being. Some were even given responsibility of their master's business dealings. We are servants, whether you realize it or not. You and I are all servants. We have willingly indentured ourselves to a loving God who is our master. Okay. When we place faith and confess our faith in Jesus Christ and are baptized in him, we enter indentured servitude to God. We have willingly given ourselves over to our master, who is our father. A godly leader loves his master and is focused on his master's will. When we think of godly leaders as, as servants, and we, when we use that servant leadership idea, it's really easy for us to think that they're serving us. Okay, That the leaders are there to, to we're kind of the master, and they're serving our needs. Not exactly. And that's why I kind of want to go down this road. They are indentured to God like we are, right? And they're committed to his service. But God has instructed them to serve us. So they are in a position to serve each and every one of us, but it's to please their master, not to please us. And I think that's an important thing to remember. And Jesus, the night of the Last Supper, and we use this again, this is another example that we constantly use is for servant leadership. He set the bar for serving, When he got down and he washed the feet of his disciples, you know it was something that they just couldn't wrap their head around. But I want to read for you the last five verses of that whole scenario, that situation in John 13, verses 14 through 17. Now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus was a servant. He came to serve, but not a servant to his disciples. He came to serve his father. He was a servant of God. Jesus served people to serve God. We serve people to serve God. We love people to love God. A godly leader will always keep his master's needs first and foremost in his mind. And to do that leads us kind of to another idea about leadership. And we can go ahead and play the video if that's ready.
1: My mind immediately goes to a quote that I remember reading in J. Oswald Sanders' classic Spiritual Leadership where he said, A cross stands in the way of Christian leadership. It is a cross upon which the leader must consent to be impaled. Now, that, that's not the kind of quote you're ever going to read when somebody's trying to recruit you for eldership or, or recruit you to go to a seminary, but it is a reality, and it is a reality that goes to the heart, I think, of, of Christian ministry because, because in Christian ministry there lies a kind of uh, paradox. It, it, it's, a, it's a paradox where people... our greatest joy. We get to serve them, and and counsel them, and love them, and and preach to them, and and be friends with them, and and do so in the context of the local church. So they're our greatest joy, but they are also the cross upon which we must consent to be impaled. And I don't know that a lot of folks are thinking about that when they think about ministry. I don't know a lot of new people when they consider going to seminary or or going ahead to be an elder in the church are thinking about that aspect of, of ministry. But I I just look at scripture and I see I see clearly I see it in the life of Paul. I think about 2 Timothy last book Paul wrote. You know, some commentators call it his last will and testament. And it's it's basically a list of all of the people that he's had difficulty with, not not over his life, but just in a, in a short period of time, Fidulus, Hermogenes, and Hymenaeus, and Philetus. And at one point, he says, all of Asia has left me. I mean, you've had bad days, but all of Asia has left me. And And, and for Paul, there was this sense where, you know, people were were folks that he loved. I mean, you can't even read his letters without seeing his deep attachment, his allegiance, his love. But they were also the cross upon which he must consent to be impaled. And I see that for Paul, and and I, I see that in my own life. And I think that if I wanted to help someone that was considering ministry, I would want to make sure that that point was clearly conveyed wow
0: you know to be a leader and again he mentions elders and deacons and titled leaders but to be a leader is more than just that it's sacrificial it's beyond the title it's actions it's an attitude uh, being a servant is truly a state of mind and a state of heart which leads us to our second point not only does a leader have to be a servant they have to be an example First Timothy. I love Timothy. Both books, it's like Paul doing a brain dump to Timothy. It's like, here's everything I learned. Go do it. Trying to pass all of this on. And in 1 Timothy 4, verses 6-12, through he writes, If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be the good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now I could have just, I was going to just read those, that last verse. That's really the point that I'm trying to make. But setting the context is also very important because being an example is not just an automatic thing. Paul is telling Timothy to train them himself in the right things so that he can be an example to the people that he is serving. It takes time, it takes work to become an example. A leader has a lot of eyes on them, both inside and outside the church. Every other month, you can find somewhere in a paper or in the newscast a church scandal. And it's a heavy burden knowing that people are watching you. But the upside of being an example is that you can be a model of Christ for people, both inside and outside the church as they are watching you. 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul tells the church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I am the example because I'm trying to be like Christ. So you be like me trying to be like Christ. It's not about Paul. Paul kept pointing them back every time to Christ. And this is an example that leaders have to follow. Anyone who is a godly leader will imitate Christ and will motivate others to follow that same example. As an example, you want to be an example, first of all, in your behavior. Yes, leaders have a high standard to live by, but they're not in any means perfect. And being an example doesn't mean that you're perfect either. I've seen this used as a club, and you probably have too, time and again against preachers, elders, and other leaders. The slightest problem with their kids, a disagreement with their wife somebody hears about, and their godliness all of a sudden is in question. And that is so dangerous to our health and well-being as a body. I mean, if you've been in a church any length of time, coming to church in general any length of time, you've seen, unfortunately, an elder pastor or deacon be removed from office for one reason or another. Sometimes it is legitimate and necessary, but whatever the reason, it's likely to be publicly known and quite embarrassing for them. I'll tell you what, if you were to know my sins and we were to discuss them to the congregation, I'd be awful embarrassed myself. The saddest thing, while I understand, is that after that happens, somebody has to be removed from office for whatever reason, you won't see them in the church again. They won't show up the next Sunday. In a way, that, that really breaks my heart because we should be the people that they trust after their fall to help pick them up and put life back together. We should have that kind of trust amongst ourselves as a family to be able to come back, embarrassed or not, and be loved for who we are as a child of God, not for the mistakes that we've made. If you can't tell, I mean, over several weeks that I've preached, I mean, healing ministry is kind of a passion of mine ever since I got into ministry. And I've just never liked the way the church professes to love and forgive sinners and welcome them back but then eat their own when they're perceived to be weak. So besides, when you're trying to be an example, besides an example in behavior, you have to be, also have to be an example in purpose. And being an example in purpose means always looking forward. Luke, in his book, writes about Jesus as a child in Jerusalem. And it's the Passover, and parents can't find him, right? And they're freaked. I mean, you lose your kid in Walmart, and you're going to have a nervous breakdown. They lost him in Jerusalem. Okay, I thought grandma had him. No, I thought the great aunt had him. No, I thought, where is he? And eventually they found him in the temple. You're familiar with the story in Luke 2.49. He responds to them, well, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? This place is probably 10 years old. It's like, wow. But Jesus was always about his father's business, which was the redemption of humankind. We constantly need to be about our father's business as servants of our master. We need to be about our master's business. Godly leaders are aware of the spiritual things going on around them, whether their circle of influence is large or whether it's small. They are always kind of aware, they've got their finger on the pulse of the people around them because that's the kind of person that they are. And there are people that we encounter daily in those circles of influence that are hurting They're feeling empty, and they need Jesus Christ is just the plain and simple answer. You don't have to be Billy Graham, okay? And I'm not going to belabor this, but you have to be ready to sit down with somebody, love on them through their hurts when they're hurting, and let them know that Jesus loves them too. It's just, it's really that simple. I mean, what did Jesus do when we read the Gospels? He'd go and heal somebody. He'd tell them that God loved them. Sometimes he'd say, don't sin anymore. Go and don't sin anymore. And he sent them on their way. That was it. He saved the big arguments, the big speeches for the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. He wasn't arguing and debating with people on the street. He was just loving them. And he was showing them God's love. First and foremost, a leader is going to look to, is their family spiritually fled? Right? We're talking about spheres of influence. Then as they move about their day, they encounter lots of people that you should always be on the lookout for opportunities to touch somebody's life. Jesus said the greatest two commandments are love your God and your neighbor as yourself. No matter what the title a leader has, or no title at all, a godly leader is always, always about their master's business, pointing people back to God. And that's because, lastly, a godly leader is a fighter. A godly leader is a fighter. Spiritual warfare is a real thing. Don't let Satan deceive you into thinking that it's not. It's also not what popular culture would sell you. It's not a fight between God and Satan, two equal beings playing games with people to win points against each other. That's even if God's a mention in the movie. In the movie Constantine, Keanu Reeves plays what is essentially a demon hunter. And he's portrayed as the only thing standing between us and the demons of hell. He's going to save all of mankind. Angela, the heroine of the movie, is talking to Constantine, and she says, I guess God has a plan for all of us. And Constantine kind of sourly responds to her, God is a kid with an ant farm; He's not planning anything. God is portrayed as this absent landlord that's just letting evil have the run of the place, just watching what happens, not caring. And I can forgive them for their ignorance because they don't know God, they don't have Jesus. You, however need to understand the exact nature of the fight that we're in. And let me tell you the truth. Do not miss this. I put this in bold so I wouldn't forget to say this directly. God has already won. Amen? Amen. Amen. The battle's already won, but the warfare is still going on. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 describes Satan as a roaring lion waiting to devour anything around him. Guess who his prime targets are? Our godly leaders, because if he can marginalize a leader, how many more people is he going to affect by marginalizing them? How many people are not going to be cared for? How many people are not going to be reached until later? I mean, God's going to reach who He's going to reach, but those leaders are there to affect God's care, and the impact of sidelining a leader because of sin is sometimes uncountable. I think I've mentioned this before. There was a church plant in the DFW area that I was aware of, and tangentially involved in and pastor is a great young guy great family just excited for Jesus who's doing a great job with the church plant it was taking off had solid ground beneath him don't know the details but he got emotionally involved with a woman in the church not physically but emotionally not good still not good so all of a sudden now no pastor he had to resign no church he's a church planter there is no backup it closes up the reach of that community has been set back. Satan just did 10 times the damage or 100 times the damage by sidelining one leader than he would by picking off one or two or three or ten of us. And that's the game that I think he's playing sometimes. So godly leaders need to be prepared not only for their sake but for the sake of those around them for this kind of attack. Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 12 tell us that we need to be ready at all times. And it talks about the armor of God. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He says, this is very real, folks, and you need to be ready for it. And leaders especially need to be ready for it. We could talk through the armor of God, and that is a whole series of sermons unto itself. could never do it justice right in the middle of this one. But there are some things that I want to focus on, a couple of points that I want to focus on to be prepared for the kind of warfare that leaders are going to encounter. And the first is prayer. Prayer is the only real preparation for spiritual warfare. Leaders are always on the front lines, and godly leaders are constantly praying everyone under their care not just those in need but literally everyone what did jesus do at every turn what was his example to us he went off by himself and he prayed he went off by himself and he prayed every important turn of events the night before he was going to be crucified he prayed he prayed and he prayed and he prayed he was spending time with the father with his master so that he could be prepared as a servant to do his master's will. Verse 18 of Ephesians 6 says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Godly leaders, again, should be praying continuously for the people that God has entrusted them with, both inside the church and outside the church. So in addition to prayer, the second most important thing, or the most important thing, but the second thing, Is the Word of God. That is our only weapon in fighting spiritual warfare. Verse 19 Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The writer of Hebrews elaborates more in 412, where he says, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It is the word of truth that has a way of penetrating to our very core. It is the daylight that penetrates the darkest place in our lives and the truth always creates a stark contrast to a lie. And that is what the word of God does for us. And it's for us. It serves to illuminate those places in our lives that we've fallen short to give us a chance to work on them before he comes back. That's not... What we feel when we read the Word of God, and we say, I can't, I can't live up to that. Well, no, but we're working on it. And this is your chance to work on it before God returns. Not be standing there at the time and say, I, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda. So that's why in 1 Timothy, one of the requirements to be an elder is to be able to teach, to be a deacon. You must keep hold of the deep truth of the faith with a clear conscience. He writes, That's because the lies of the enemy, Satan, attack people, they attack families, they attack whole churches. And God's leaders stand at the front line defending us from these attacks and beating back Satan's lies with the word of God as their sword. With all of this being said, being a godly leader really is a joy and not a burden. If it is a burden, then you shouldn't be a leader. I say that in all sincerity i mean if it is a burden you're in the wrong business doing the wrong things and it's a privilege to be trusted with god's most valued possessions his children but with that trust becomes great responsibility the responsibility to be a servant to look after those that are in your care the responsibility to be an example to live your life to the best of your ability Not projecting an image of perfection, but a real, authentic example that battles with sin and temptation, just like the rest of us, and overcomes it, and models God's grace when we fall short. The responsibility to put on the full armor of God and be equipped as a fighter to do battle with Satan on behalf of God's people. Remember, this is not just a title. A leader is much more than a title. In any group, leaders will always emerge. It's just natural. Leaders who don't necessarily have a title but have influence over groups of people just the same. Whether it's church or work or social gatherings, someone will emerge as a leader and influence that group. God holds those leaders accountable to the same responsibility for the influence that they wield as they do leaders with titles. So use it wisely. I want to do something a little different. I know the elders are here, and Mark's up there subbing for me today. Thank you, Mark. Are there any deacons? Do we have any deacons right now? No. Okay. So, elders, would you please stand up for a minute? And again, don't forget that Mark is up there. Normally, in other circumstances, I'd ask them to come up, and I'd ask everybody else to come up and, and lay hands on them. We're not in that context right now. So what I want you to do is I want everybody to stand. Please if you're able. And I want you to reach out to them as we pray over them to be godly leaders. Father in heaven, I pray that you would pour your blessing out on these men, on any new elders that we're going to elect, on deacons, on the people of the congregation who, without recognition or title, are leaders among their groups. And I would pray that you would pour out your spirit on them and your blessing and that you would give them the vision of being a leader and leading people to you in a, in a positive and in a way that, that saves their lives. I mean, this, it's, it's all about saving people's lives, Lord. And I pray that we would take up that spirit of love and healing and pour it out on our leaders so that they can be replenished and encouraged to continue to minister to us. Bless them, Father, for their sacrifice and for their willingness to serve and their courage to serve. And Father, I just thank you for this family that you have given each one of us that we can share in this body of Christ together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. We'll have a time of invitation as we normally do. If you need love, if you're having issues and you need Jesus' touch, this is one of those times that you can come forward and ask for prayer. This is one of those times that you can membership if you want to give your life to jesus christ i mean it's it's kind of odd to come up in front of the group and do things like that but at the same time it's a blessing because we can all share in that burden in that joy in that recognition so if you do have something that you'd like to share i encourage you to do so and we'll give it a minute for that and then glenn you can close us thank you